Cardology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to this week's Thursday episode of the Fraudology podcast, where we dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of an e-commerce fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I'm really not sure how we got to November, but here we are. If you are a retailer with physical goods or even one with popular gift cards, you know that the next two months are going to be crazy. <laughs> I've had several conversations with retailers lately that, you know, especially in the last two years, it seems like at least in the U.S., the unofficial in quotation marks beginning of the holiday season has been moved up from kind of Black Friday, Cyber Monday and all of that to November 11th, which in the U.S. is Veterans Day and in China is Singles Day. If you have if your company has a presence in China, you already know about Singles Day. It is so much bigger than the by transaction number and volume as well as by dollar amount. So much bigger than Black Friday and Cyber Monday combined for the country of China for shoppers and getting themselves gifts. It's kind of like it's been described to me as it's kind of like a made up holiday similar to how Amazon co-opted Prime Day. And we've seen other retailers run promotions around the same time, kind of like that. So I know that things are about to get really busy. And I also know that that means that a lot of you will be listening while you're working and while you're looking at manual review or looking at data and analyzing it and everything else. I so appreciate it. I know that account takeovers have been such a headache for people in fraud for years, but it seems like especially the last couple of months it skyrocketed. A few weeks ago, I talked about, and I mentioned it last week too, but a few weeks ago, I talked about a newer account takeover method that certainly, or at least an MO, it certainly seemed like it was due to a lot of data being exposed and credential data. But all we can do is guess. But when you're in the fraud prevention game, it doesn't always matter as much where the source of the data leak was as it does the impact, right? And kind of the cause and the effect. Yes, it's helpful to understand the cause, but we have to deal with the effect. So I continue to hear from retailers who are seeing that similar MO. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, go back, I think, three weeks and learn more about it. I believe I titled the episode something about a data breach. So being able to assess and diagnose account takeovers due to data breaches. But on last week's Thursday episode, I started to talk about the anatomy of account takeovers. And one of the reasons I did that is as much as I've had several episodes talking about newer account takeover methods, the episode with the case studies has been quoted back to me several times. I know people have used some of that information in their own research as well as communications internally with leadership, et cetera. There's been a lot of discussion about account takeovers throughout fraudology and, you know, also on webinars I've done and other things. I got to thinking about it and I didn't think I'd ever really provided foundational information about account takeovers and how they work and why they happen and where they can be identified and how and what tools can be used and all of that. 
So that is what I'm doing today. Actually, I started last Thursday with part one. And on part one, you know, I talked about really trying to diagnose the problem and learning more about what's needed to commit account takeovers. What are some of the motivations for using this method? And I broke down the motivations based on business model. If you follow me on LinkedIn, you may have seen that I shared a slide that a listener created to share with the rest of their company. They're a vendor company to understand how different models are attacked. And I did them very generally. And obviously, if we dive in even more from one-sided retailers, so retailers that are providing and fulfilling their own goods and services, then we could go into, well, what do account takeovers for gaming companies look like versus event ticketing versus travel versus physical goods and all of that, or two-sided marketplaces, right? It really depends on a few things. For instance, if there are in-person interactions between the buyer and the seller, if there isn't and all that. But at the highest level on last Thursday's episode, I broke down one-sided retailers, two-sided marketplaces, as well as fintechs and banks and what a lot of the most common motivations for utilizing account takeover to gain access to the platforms is. And so I think that it sounds like that's been helpful already. And I love to hear how you guys are using this information. I know of a very large fintech that provides some of the recordings from some of the episodes that the manager thinks would be helpful for their team and streams it on one of their Zoom calls. I I'm so flattered by that. And I continually tell them, like, tell me how I can get better. Tell me how what else you need to know. Just like I asked you guys. If I haven't yet mentioned the Fredology listener survey, the link is in the show notes. Please fill it out because I do want to get better. And sometimes I don't what everyone needs or wants. So this week, I'm really going to dive into the necessary stages of an account takeover, what each stage is, and kind of where you can identify and will detect and then prevent it. At each of those points, you know, from account login all the way through the order or the transfer process, you know, where detection and prevention methods can be applied and some of the most used strategies and types of technology to identify and block account takeovers in your system in the future. So I'm just going to dive right in. The first part that I wanted to talk about are the attack stages. Obviously, the first one is account login. Last week, we talked about the data that they need to and where they often get that data in order to commit account takeover. How they sourced the data as well as what data was harvested will come into play at account login. So for instance, if they received a database of usernames and passwords or emails and passwords for the specific company that they're targeting, they will often do, you know, credential stuff. Well, they'll often do a bot campaign or scripted attack and just continually try to log into all of those accounts. And depending on their motivation that we talked about last week, they might just be peeking in quotation marks where looking around in the account, determining what is available as far as stored value, whether that's loyalty points or air miles or store credits, gift cards, stored payment methods. Did they store a credit card or their multiple credit cards stored? Is it an alternative payment that's been used? All of those things. So sometimes if they're going to resell that information to someone else, they'll identify that they can get into the account, they'll verify that, and then they'll identify what's in the account of value to resell. Often they'll package it up, either specific for the retailer or the bank or the fintech, or sometimes, and this is especially true for malware, they'll package it up, package it up, 
for one person. So they'll say, well, here are their usernames and passwords for 10 or 20 accounts. And here's all the accounts that this can access. And here's all the value. So oftentimes it's more the first one where they're really targeting the retailers, but sometimes they'll put together a fulls or a full portfolio of one person, which is detrimental, obviously, if you're that consumer. So going back to how the data is harvested, again, if they've received the username and password, or maybe they've received usernames and passwords or credentials of of accounts for all kinds of other services online. But they want to see if the consumer uses the same one for your website or your bank, online banking, etc. So they may do credential stuffing there and trial and error. And oftentimes, if they have access to more than one password for a consumer, they can start to see the pattern, right? Is there always the same number combination or are they always using their dog's name or something like that? And so they'll trial and error it. Also, sometimes they just need a username or, or an email address. And I don't know as much about this as I would like to, but I can only learn so much in a day. And I feel like this is probably a little bit more on the cybersecurity side, but it's important for us to know about password crackers are becoming more of a thing. I know that Al Pascal recently posted on LinkedIn an article about how easy and how quick it is for password crackers to identify passwords with eight characters or less. And that was certainly terrifying. I don't know enough about them to understand how they work or you know anything like that. I do know that the longer the password and the more special and unique or just special characters that you put into the password will help make that safer. But those are some of the, you know, the ways that will matter. And the reason why I'm kind of going into those details is because that can help you with your diagnosis. When you see how they are behaving at login, you can understand more about what they're doing and what they have access to, which can then eventually lead to, well, how can we solve it? If they have compromised the email, this can be a challenge for sure. And oftentimes what you will see is that they forgot their password. So you know, because they have control of the victim's email inbox, they can just go to your website or they probably know which companies they do business with and which bank they do business with because there's probably marketing emails in that inbox and or order confirmation emails in that inbox. So they'll just go out to the website and forget password and go and look at it, you know, in the inbox and click the link and go do it. If multi-factor authentication is needed, then there's definitely some tricks for them there as well. And I'll talk about those in just a minute. The One of the account login accesses that I wanted to be sure to address, and I think I talked a little bit about malware on last week's episode, but when a device or a user's device is infected with malware, and specifically the malware that sends login information to the host, that means that every single time that the user on that device logs into any website, whether it's their banking, their work, if they don't use a VPN, or actually, I don't know if that's 100% true. I'm sorry. I don't know about the VPN thing. I might be mixing things up, but they'll see, you know, every online account that's being entered in. And what is sent back to the host isn't just the username and password or the email and password credentials. It's also the full session data. And that is terrifying. I actually had Ellie Dominance, the CEO of Q6 Cyber, on the podcast back in 2020 when we first started, way before we joined the Rolled Up Network and have grown like four or five times since then. But I had Ellie on to specifically talk about this malware because they work primarily with financial institutions and fintechs. They do work with a pretty large handful of online companies. Some of them are because I have made introductions because I have yet to meet any other company that has the same capabilities that Q6 does in this way, especially. But they sit in between 
the victim device and the host of the malware. So they are ingesting all of that data. And when their clients have accounts that come through on that, so when one of the infected devices is coming through and entering in their login information and all that session data from the device to the IP to the type of device, you know, do they always use droids? Do they use Apple, iOS, Macs, you know, or PCs or what version of the browser are they using? Do they like Chrome? Do they like Firefox, et cetera? All of those details, you know, along obviously with the device ID number and all of that are sent to the malware host. And Q6 is able to give heads up to the companies that they work with and say, hey, these accounts have been sent to malware. So you may want to not close them, but you may want to put extra scrutiny on them if there's a suspicious login. He talked about all that on that episode. So if you haven't really heard a lot about malware ATOs, I highly recommend going back. I didn't do my research to see what number episode that is, but it was way at the beginning. And I bet if you just search for L-E-E-L-I, kind of spelled like Eli, or Q6, you'll find it in the podcast platform that you're in. So obviously have to be in fraudology and then go search there. But anyway, so when malware is used to get account details, then oftentimes bad actors will use emulators. And I know that at least up until several months ago, I don't know if this has changed or not, but the most successful emulator, the one that was really preferred method for those who obtained credentials via malware was called Lincoln Sphere. And I think that it is L-I-N-K- L-O-N and then S-P-H-E-R-E. I could be wrong. I have screenshots of it somewhere on my computer, but they basically just copy and paste all the information or can write a bot script to put all the information into the emulator and make it look really, really close. I mean, if you're looking at IP, only the last couple of digits at the end are going to be different. If you're looking at device, it's going to be very, very similar. You're going to know their ISP. Well, it's the same ISP as before. And oh, look, their geolocation is the same and everything else. But the behavior of the order or the behavior of the account might be way different or other things like that. So I just wanted to touch on the malware piece. Definitely seen a huge uptick in e-commerce, fintech and crypto and marketplaces being the targets of this. And I think it's important to know about otherwise a lot of people get confused and think, wow, account takeovers are so confusing and they think it's still credential stuffing and you're not really, you know, if you're not solving the right problem, then you're not going to get a solution. So to that problem. So that's why I wanted to bring it up. Okay, so let's go to the next step when the fraudster logs in and takes stock of what's in the account. When they're trying to do that, if they have gotten access to the email or even if your system is set up so that if you see a new device or IP or location signed into the account, you may require multi-factor authentication. Oftentimes it's through SMS or email where you send a link and send a code or just have them click on the link, whatever that method is. And I think that it can still be effective, but at the same time, just like with everything, fraudsters will find a way around it. Like I would say, they're like toddlers and teenagers, right? They will find a way to get what they want. And sometimes they'll be very creative. So there are a few different ways that MFAs or, be, or multi-factor authentications are being exploited. Two of the most common, you know, will send a text message to the victim. And like I said, you know, all those things are so easy to find, especially in the U.S. because public records data is everywhere and free and all of that. We don't have GDPR here, which is also why verification tools in the U.S. work so well. So, you know, it's a double-edged sword, but it's fairly easy for them to find a victim's phone number. Or maybe they have one of those master lists that I talked about in last episode where 
they have, you know, pieces of information for the victim already. They already have phone number from another breach or they already have email address from something else, et cetera. Or maybe the consumer put their phone number on their social media because sometimes that happens too. So anyway, they'll text the consumer and oftentimes they'll impersonate the company that they're trying to do business with. So if I'm a fraudster and I'm trying to get into your account and I get the notice that MFA is being initiated, I might send a text to your phone at the same time and say, hey, this is ABC Company. And we suspect that there might be some fraud on your account. So we are sending you a code in order to verify that you are the account holder of this account with our company. Please send us the code on this text message. Now, those of us that work in fraud would probably say, well, why am I not entering it into the website or sending it back to the phone number that texted me about it? But consumers don't know these things and they aren't thinking about it. And oftentimes they hear fraud and get worried. So they just like, okay, I'll do what they say. And I trust this company, so I'll do it. I do know that there's been some banks. I think one of my credit card companies did this once when I had MFA come up on the text message. It said, we will never ask in a separate text message for you to send it back or we will never call you and ask you to send it back. Like you can only enter it into our website. I think that's a good idea and one that could be considered. I heard from a listener recently who works for a financial institution that has credit or debit cards. I'm just trying to make it as anonymous as possible. And they've been getting a lot of reports recently from consumer or from their customers that they're getting text messages from that bank and stating that their account was compromised and that they need to re-enter it or go give them the code. I believe it was MFA. Now I'm like, maybe I should have reread that message before I talked about it. But one of the things that she asked was, well, how would they know that these people are our customers? Well, if you're a financial institution, especially, and credit card numbers or debit card numbers are exposed or Maybe their accounts were taken over at a retailer and they were able to see the first six digits and the last four digits of the card on file. Well, those first six digits are the bin and they'll tell you what bank they belong to. So now if you're in their account on an e-commerce site and you have the first six digits and within their account, you can also find their phone number very easily or their email address. Now you can impersonate their bank. It's similar to when lists of credit cards are compromised. And even after those credit cards are closed and shut down, either because the cardholder reported it or because the bank identified the point of compromise, they will you know, that there are whole new scams that can come up from those where they might call the customer or the cardholder and say, hey, this is your bank and we know that there was fraud on your account recently. We just need to verify your new card number. Oh, okay, let me get that for you because my caller ID says that you are calling from my bank, so you must be. I actually got one of those ones, so I think I talked about it. I don't know when, but either on this podcast or the other one, but the previous one, but it happened to me and I, it was fairly convincing mostly because of the caller ID, but because I have an app on my phone that, you know, supposed to be able to identify when that doesn't happen, when that's been spooked. So I was surprised. But when I asked, well, what account number do you need? Because first they just said, well, we need to verify your account number for privacy and safety. And I was like, well, you called me, so you should know it's me. But I said, well, which account? Because I have a few different ones. I have a business account, I have my personal one, I have my joint checking, I've got savings, etc. I also have my daughter's savings account when she was under 18. Like just all those things, right? I don't even know. And it's not like there's, I might have a lot of accounts, but let's just be clear. 
there. There's not like a ton in each of them. But I asked, you know, which account is it? And he said, well, all of them. And I'm like, okay, well, now you're scamming me. But that's one way, you know, part of the problem is as soon as just even one piece of data is revealed, there's so much information out there where they can identify a scam just using that. It's infuriating, but we need to know what they're doing so that we can know how to stop it and identify it. So oftentimes, you know, they'll do that. The other way, pop main or popular way that multi-factor authentication is being exploited is through MFA fatigue or MFA bombing. That's essentially when they have the system ping you or they send their own text messages acting like you need to do MFA, you need to do MFA, you need to do MFA over and over and over again until finally the person just responds back with what they need, what is being asked. That's actually how a breach of corporate systems at Uber were or how corporate systems were breached or accessed or exposed. I know it wasn't consumer data but it was access to their systems. That's how that happened. It was through MFA bombing back in September. So that's happening for more than just quotation marks account takeover on commerce. It's also happening for employee accounts, obviously, which has a whole other set of ramifications because as I've talked about, there's at least one shipping carrier out there that's most popular in the U.S., where there are a lot of employee, oh, there's a fair amount of employee logins for sale on bad actor forums, fraudster forums, allowing the users to, or the person who buys that employee account to be able to copy paste any tracking number from that shipping carrier they've ever had and change the final status from delivered to lost in transit or returned to sender. And those are super tricky for merchants to identify. So there are so many reasons for account takeover. I might have said that last. I'm sorry, guys. Sometimes I just forget what I say. I mean, we're on episode, I want to say 143 today. Like sometimes I forget everything I've said. So I apologize. But then again, I guess not everybody listens to every episode. So maybe I shouldn't apologize. Fraudology is now brought to you by Sardine. So what is Sardine? I mean, other than a small oily fish in the herring family, Sardine is a fraud tech platform that was ultimately built by fraud fighters for fellow fraud fighters with the features that they wanted in a fraud provider when they worked for companies within financial services, e-commerce, digital banking, and consumer lending. They're a team who geeks out on the same minute data that indicate a fraud pattern or anomaly as we do, and they run investigations every day. Sardine's product is even measured with the same KPIs as you probably are. More specifically, Sardine has combined more than 30 data providers into one tool for you. Benchmarked for performance into a single dashboard and API that can be used for KYC, AML, and payment fraud detection. But crucially, they also allow Sardine customers to use their own data, to access their own data, as well as the results from all data providers they work with and the features Sardine has created as they, their customers, need to use them. There's no more mysterious black box that calculates the risk of new accounts, logins, or transactions and magically turns them into a score that was most likely based on attributes that look risky to other business models. For some clients, they use Sardines as their full stack for all account onboarding, transaction monitoring, case management, etc. Others use them as a sophisticated data provider. Basically, Sardine fits to you rather than vice versa. So if you want to see for yourself that the product you've always wanted finally exists, you can book a demo at www.sardine.ai or by clicking the link in the show notes for today's episode.
So anyway, the fraudster has, at this point in the attack stages, they've gotten into the account. They've logged in and they've looked around. They've taken stock of what's in the account. What's the amount in the account? If it's banking, investment, crypto, et cetera, are there any linked or connected accounts? What is their past purchase history? What payment methods are attached? What loyalty or store credits do they have, et cetera? So they're taking stock of that. Either to monetize it immediately for themselves, like the most recent account takeover MO that I talked about a couple of weeks ago that was really targeting. At that time, it was specialty retailers. So luxury goods, sneakers, electronics, anything that could then be fenced or resold very quickly. I've heard from a couple of companies that are a little bit outside that scope that are seeing something similar, but that's, those are really the core ones that are seeing this. And this is a, a little bit different because they are just instantly monetizing it however they can. If there's stored value, they're using the store credit. If there is, or they're using the loyalty points. If there is payment methods on file, they prefer non-card payment methods because the authorization is faster, but they'll go for cards if that's all they have. And they're just trying to get as much money right now. Other times they're taking stock either for themselves or to resell. So that makes a difference as well. It really depends on the skills, the tools, the interest and demand, whether they're going to sell the items, if they're going to actually monetize that account and cash out by selling, reselling the items, or if they're going to sell the account. It depends on their skills. It depends on the criminal organization they're a part of. Are they a lone wolf or a loose fitting organization? Or are they working in an office building in Southeast Asia and this is all they do all day long? All those things are going to matter about what skills they have and who's how they're going to do it. Some fraudsters specialize in, you know, accessing accounts, you know, then they'll sell the lists of the verified accounts and they'll rarely monetize the accounts themselves because there's less exposure from law enforcement and there's no need to set up, you know, a pipeline to cash out. So again, just really depends on their skills and their knowledge and, and their motives and intentions. It always comes back to that, right? If they're selling the data, if they're selling all the account information and login information, to another party, oftentimes after that first access of the account and there's been no transaction or monetization or anything like that that would be a red flag other than the one login with a random IP or device, et cetera, then oftentimes that can be weeks or months. You'll see the account accessed again by a different device and IP and their mission is to cash it out. So there's just different parts of it so that you can understand the anatomy and then understand how you can dissect it to use that analogy a little bit more into understanding it further. One of the ways that you can see if they're doing the peaking, so to speak, I don't know if there's another word. I got that word from Raj, who, Raj Kar, actually, K-H-A-R-E. I hope he doesn't mind the shout out. He was at Wish previously and did some incredible research on account takeovers. I really wanted to have him as a guest, and I honestly dropped the ball in doing the work that was needed by their comms team to get permission. So I apologize. I'm falling on the sword for that. He's now at LinkedIn, and I'm hopeful that they will be okay with him coming on because I think he is just so wise and talented. One of the reasons why I am shouting him out is because he's also named in the book, The Practical Fraud Prevention by O'Reilly Publishing, written by Shoshana Marini and Galit Saporta. So because he was able to share his name in the book, I am hopeful that he's fine on the podcast. But one of the identifiers of that is that you can see multiple IPs and devices accessing the account with no fraudulent activity occurring, right? They're not monetizing it. They're just accessing it. And the transaction or the transfer or withdrawal, they're not accessing those, right? They're not committing a transaction or a transfer or withdrawal of money. So you, know, you won't have visibility into this, into the account access part, if your InfoSec team owns account logins and, and 
that. So if they have visibility into login activity and attempts, certainly worth asking. Hopefully you've already asked to have them share that information with your fraud provider. If they have account protection product, or hopefully we start seeing account protect and transaction protection services looped in together. That would be my hope. That is a conversation for a whole other day. But it's important to kind of get those logs. I heard from a merchant not too long ago that said that they recently learned that their InfoSec team was not recording those logins. And so that was very concerning for them and something that they had to work on because that is really important. When you don't have visibility into the login, it can be much harder to identify an account takeover because you're only looking at the monetization and the transaction piece. And especially if they had actually access to malware, it's going to look so similar. So knowing how did they log into the account? What was the behavior between the time that they logged into the account and the time that they monetized the account? How many times were their logins? How long were they in the account? Where did they click, et cetera? There are some really cool technologies out there that actually are able to track and provide all that data on how your good customers navigate your website and what those outliers are in navigating your website. Do they know exactly where the item is? Are they just different pieces like that? I'm not going to dive in too much because, again, public forum. But most of what I'm sharing, if not all, is you know available publicly somewhere. So I think it's fine. But there is definitely a red line I am trying not to cross. So I also wanted to read a part of this book. Sorry, I thought I was on the right page. Yeah, so just a little bit more about this peaking piece. There will then be a watching period during which the fraudster will log in a number of times, often from the same IP address and device, and review recent activity. Sometimes this will be done on a regular schedule, mimicking the behavior of a user who routinely checks their account. During this period, extra information tied to the fraudster may be added to the account, such as phone number or address. So as they're trying to look more legitimate, if they got a successful login with a different IP and device from the user the first time, then they might set up a schedule to log in every week, especially in banking or crypto or investments where the withdrawal or the transfer can be much higher and there isn't a need for really fencing or reselling products necessarily. So those are things to know about too, where that can definitely happen. Then another part, and this is actually from Raj, the Raj card that I just mentioned, it's also worth noting that there are often three types of fraudsters involved in an ATO attack. Raj Carl called these types the sniffer type. Uh, to me, he said peaking. So sniffer is the first one, the wanderer type, and the financial impact type. The sniffers gain the initial access. The wanderers explore and analyze the account and the financial impactors make use of it. It's a distinction many non-fraud fighters won't find intuitive, so it's worth explaining explicitly to colleagues from other departments. Giving them names like Sniffer and Wanderer might help add a splash of personality to make the threat seem more real. It's so funny. I know both Shoshana and Galit personally, so and I know that they wrote this together. And when I'm reading the book, I can almost picture which one of them contributed to each paragraph. I know they each edited each one, but like which one of them wrote the paragraph first. It's just kind of funny. I know there were a couple of things in this part that I really wanted to dive into. So I just want to make sure I wasn't missing anything. Oh, and oftentimes once they get access to the account and before they're going to monetize it, they can lock the good user out. One of the first victims of the ETO attack that I talked about three weeks ago, when I looked at the reports from the consumers, 
they, you know, the screenshots they provided and what they claimed about the hack of their account in quotation marks. It was interesting because some of them were saying that they used the native app and then they realized that they had an order or and other ones didn't notice until their card was charged. And when they went into the app, they noticed that the fraudster had turned off all notifications so that even multi-factor authentication wasn't being sent to, to the user. So the user wasn't getting, you know, all the push notifications that you would get if you use the native app for that company. What was interesting, however, was two things. One was that even when the good user got access to the account, the merchant wasn't locking the login token. So oftentimes the fraudster and the good user would be in the account at the same time. And I saw a few examples that were kind of funny. I mean, in our version of humor, where the good user, the real account holder would fail a ticket or send a note to customer support saying, my account was hacked. I didn't make this purchase. Please refund it. Don't send it, etc. Then they'd log out and be good. Or they, they would actually change the username and password even. And then they'd log out. And then right after that, the fraudster and the person who was not the real account holder would then send another ticket to customer service saying, oh, you know what? I just talked to my brother and he did make that order. So please, please send it. And there were a couple where like it was back and forth, back and forth. And those can be extra hard for fraud departments to investigate. And by the time you've had an attack like this, there's so much triage that is involved because now you have consumers calling you and posting on Twitter if you're not responding in the right amount of time and everything else, which is why I keep thinking that we need to move from a best practice standpoint to include disaster preparedness or emergencies, kind of like cybersecurity does too. So you already have a plan when your company faces a major ATO attack and you've already talked to all the areas of the business to explain to them what it will be, what you'll need, et cetera, so that your communications team can get right on it and just put out a note. Yep, it looks like there's a lot more account takeovers than usual. This is what we recommend people to do. This is the way to, you know, et cetera, because the longer that the merchant stays quiet, the more that Reddit and Twitter and other areas of the internet just blow up talking about your business and how it's not secure. And that can be very detrimental and impact trust. But I thought it was interesting. So the other piece of this was that they were, even if the good user had gone in and changed their username and password to the account, if that actor already had access to their account, they could keep logging in with the old password or at least still have access. And it has something to do with the login tokens not expiring. So I want to get more information on that from one of the smartest merchants I know and talk about that more in another episode. But I think, you know, learning about login tokens and how that works can be helpful because when consumers customers were, you know, especially people that shop online a lot, they're very savvy and they know how things should work and they know how they shouldn't. And there's also just a lot of hobbyists who love to be detectives and investigators. And so they, they'll try to figure out too. And when consumers and customers of this one company were starting to say this, then it was like, well, now they really don't have security. Now they really haven't thought of us. So it was bad enough that their account got compromised and exposed. But then on top of that, they were upset that, and I mean, we could say rightfully so, but they were pointing out that the bad actors were still able to be in the account even after they changed the password. So then what do they do? So going back to the stages, the account is monetized. In banking and fintech, it'll be an attempted transfer to mimic the cardholder's behavior. So similar amounts is what the account holder will transfer. They can make it occur over a few days to try to go undetected. It's really going to depend on what the bad actors know about the financial institutions or the the fintech's defenses and detection methods. And that's true on all of these, right? And I think I said that last week. The fraudster will always go to the point of least resistance. So if your company isn't even looking at devices and logins, 
and seeing, oh, we've never seen this device or this IP or this geography log into this account before, then that's all they're going to do is just log in from other accounts and they're not going to mask anything. But then as you start to put different defenses in play, they'll start rising to that occasion. And I think it's to know not only what they're doing now, but what comes next. And that's something that I've definitely been privileged to learn from so many people. But just, okay, if we clear up this hole, then we're going to have another one. And another listener pointed that out to me the other day where they said that they had account takeovers. They put some things in play, such as if we see a new device plus new behavior, we're going to require multi-factor authentication or we're going to require them to re-enter their credit card, the full credit card number before completing the transaction. Well, now they've seen a different type of attack, not through account takeover, but now they've seen you know different credit card attacks that are looking legitimate. So they'll always kind of, you know, they'll move all where they need to. As far as monetizing e-commerce and marketplaces, they'll transfer loyalty points or air miles to one master account and sell it. Same with stored credit or gift cards, you know, stored payment method for purchasing online gift cards or, you know, physical goods. They need to set up a drop address or, you know, an access, pick up an access point or try to reroute with shipping carriers. So there's just different methods there. I am going longer than I expected even for this second episode, but I am trying to kind of like go through it. So I think I've talked a fair amount of different identification and prevention methods. As far as detection, that's really going to happen at the login as well as for behavior. And depending on the sophistication of your account takeovers and the volume, as well as the amount of damage that they're making, not only to dollar amount that you're having to reimburse the customers whose accounts have been compromised, but also in the trust piece and just how prevalent it's getting, words getting out that they don't feel safe using your site or your bank or your crypto or whatever it is, then there are other things. There's behavioral biometrics. There's some really great technology out there that can help you identify even how someone is typing in the password, right? So one of the demos I received, and this was a few years ago, and I know that this tool has actually been enhanced even more, but they use the analogy of, and actually they showed me, they used their coworker's laptop and their coworker's password for an account. Well, I think it was a dummy account, but, and still the biometrics wasn't correct, even though the device and the password were accurate. And that's because they were logging the cadence of how the password was entered. They were monitoring how the phone was being held. Are you typing with your thumbs or your fingers, et cetera. So these are the kinds of things that as a consumer, it's a little bit creepy, but as a fraud fighter and fraud professional, it's pretty awesome. So there's different layers of protection and detection depending on factors such as your budget and the impact and all of that. For authentication, you know, multi-factor authentication can obviously be used. That's really, you know, something you know, something you have something you are, I think is what they say. So there are a lot of efforts to social engineer via text, as I mentioned before, but there are also other spins on multi-factor authentication. There's dynamic MFA. There's, there's just, there's so many different options out there. So I think it's good to know what those are, whether it's for right now or for when there's an attack and you know, okay, if there's a really big attack, these are the different levers we can pull or that we can go to very quickly to increase and enhance our security. Some cases are requiring ID document verification. So, you know, instead of a multi-factor authentication, if it just really doesn't look like it's the same person logging into the account, they can ask for them to upload a picture of their driver's license using one of the ID doc verification providers. That's a use case that's starting to get more popular. 
But it really depends, right? If someone's just trying to buy some clothes, they're probably not going to want to update or give you a picture of their driver's license and a selfie of themselves or just the picture of the driver's license. But if they're trying to access a marketplace account where they're going to stay in someone else's home or drive someone else's car or ride in someone else's car or all kinds of other use cases, then they'll probably feel fine doing that. So it really just depends on so many factors about the business, but that's another option. You can also look at things that you can do internally and not, I think there needs to always be a combination of internal effects and as well as, or internal solutions as well as external third party. You can look at account changes and combinations, right? So if it's a new device and they just change their email or phone number or their address or any one of them or combination of them, then, you know, or if the transaction differs from the customer's patterns or transactional risks are identified by your fraud screening tool. Then sometimes you, know, you can go the identity verification route. You can go the call the customer on the phone number that you, you know, had originally on the account. Make sure all those things are being stored. You're not just dumping out old addresses and phone numbers whenever they're re-entered because that's going to help you with account takeovers as well. Identifying them as well as knowing how to contact the real account holder. But once you do those things, you can ask, work with a third party for that dynamic friction, so to speak, or you can do things internally. These might require internal engineering resources, but I already mentioned one of them. I know like, for instance, when I logged into, so when we were in Hawaii a few months ago, I logged on to my, because my phone, because it was Prime Day actually. So now I just mentioned it twice on this episode. Wow, that was not intended. And because I was, you know, I was on my same device I have been, but because I was in Hawaii and probably because I was spending more money on one transaction than I usually do, Amazon asked me to enter my CVV, the last three digits on the back of my card. Then they asked, I think they also asked for a full card number at some point, but, and I was like, absolutely, I'll do that because I know exactly why you're doing it. These are the kinds of things when you see big companies do things like that. I often will use those in conversations with leadership at merchant locations who are pushing back and saying, well, friction, friction's bad. Friction's the F word. Well, don't forget targeted friction from the episode last Tuesday with Mike Lewis, who is the head of engineering and machine learning for risk at Square, as well as Sean Colpitz, who is a senior fraud investigator for Just Eat Takeaway. Mike talks about targeted friction and how this is something that Airbnb really cornered and identified and talked about. And there's actually a link to that original article in the show notes of that episode from two weeks ago. Episode 143. How can I remember them all? (laughs) But yeah, so you can use, you know, a combination of internal knowledge and diagnostics, you know, by identifying the motives and the methods and the technology used by the group for this attack. Then you can create rules and feed your machine learning model with risk characteristics. For instance, there was a merchant and a couple of them actually, because they shared it in our group, our retailer group. And then a few others said, oh yeah, we're seeing them too, where they're seeing account takeovers and they're seeing address changes, but they were just changing little bits of it. So they were putting like two E's in Avenue or things like that, or they're just changing the street number, but it was just, there were very slight modifications and manipulations so that they wouldn't be tied together. So that because rules engines would see that as a totally different address. Now, some companies are moving to address normalization at checkout and requiring that so that it matches what the carriers have on file. And that way you're not having those address manipulations as much, but people can still override them. And they think, oh, well, I'm using the same drop address as I did for two other accounts, but this time I'm just going to put two A's in Avenue at the beginning and their system isn't going to tie it together because it's different. 
And for rules engines, rules only, that's true. But thankfully, there are so many other systems out there that that's not always the case right now. All right. I think that I have gone through, I've exhausted my list, and I hope that this has been helpful for you guys. Like I said, it's kind of hard to do these types of things without slide decks and without having specific companies that I'm talking to for training and just without visuals, but I hope that it was helpful. I know that a few people took quite a bit of on last week's, the first part of this episode, so... I hope that this was the same for you too. I have a couple of really good interviews. My home was really tough and a hard subject, but so important for all of us to know coming up in the next couple of weeks. And don't forget the Fraud Awareness Week is coming up in two weeks. I believe it is the second, wait, the second full week of November is what I want to say it is. So if your company is not signed up to be a participating member, I'm actually talking to myself as well because I told Haley Wyndham when she gave the challenge that I would do that and I haven't yet. So there we go. I'm reminding myself too, but you can go to ACFE and register there. All right, you guys, I hope that this was helpful. I know account takeovers are not easy and they change a lot and they can be stressful, but they're not impossible. And I think we have enough information on the good side, especially as we share it with each other to at the very least make it cost way more time and money for these guys than it's worth. And I think that really needs to be our goal. We can never eradicate fraud, but we can make it so that it's not worth their time or their money to target your company. And that's kind of where we're at right now. All right. I look forward to speaking with you next week. I'm going to bring another awesome interview. Don't forget to listen to Haley's The sample of the episode of the T podcast, the internal podcast that Haley Wyndham created her credit union. If you didn't listen to that on Tuesday, so good. I'm going to be talking about that one for a while. But with that, I'm going to call it a day and I'm going to look forward to speaking with you more next week. Thanks so much. Thank you again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.